Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Bill Radke, and this is a good time to release the wiggle. It's the way you weigh your emotions on both of your sleeves. Ah, to the face you make when I tell you that I had to leave. Beyonce has graced us with her first solo studio album in six years, Renaissance, which is a celebration of dance music from house to New Orleans bounce to disco. Yes, disco. Donna Summer, hello. The record just released last night at midnight Eastern time. We're all still digesting it, of course, but I figured I would pay tribute to Queen Bee while I introduce a great panel of journalists for today's Week in Review. NPR National Desk correspondent Martin Costi is here. Hi, Martin. Good afternoon. And also with us is independent journalist who covers health and other topics, Joanne Silberner. Hi, Joanne. Great to be here. And with me in studio, and we're a little bit uh, uh, sweltering in here because our AC is being uh, replaced on Today of All Days, Mike Davis, KUOW arts reporter. Hey, Mike. Hey, Libby. How you doing? I figure you have uh, listened at least a little bit to the new album. What's your first take on the Beyonce album? First of all, why would she make us wait for all of these years? (laughs) But well worth the wait. I love uh, the cuts that you play, but thick. That's my favorite. That's your favorite? Oh, by far. I'm loving that song. All Uh, right. (laughs) Kevin Kniestead, can we uh, maybe get thick for later to maybe play Mike out at the end of the show? Yeah, I mean, you know, she's one of those folks who was extra productive in the pandemic, the people that I'm really jealous of. Um, But instead of something boring like making sourdough, she made three (laughs) albums, apparently, of different music genres. Renaissance is just the first of a set. Um, It was hard to pick a favorite and one that we could get a clean NPR-friendly cut from right off the bat here on Week in Review. But yeah, I really love Plastic Off the Sofa. And then the Donna Summer uh, tribute, Summer Renaissance, of course, is amazing as well. But the the single off the album, too, that one uh, got me really excited about 90s dancehall music coming back. Anyway, we're excited about Beyonce. That's the top story on Week in Review uh, this week. But another huge story, of course, is that it is hot outside. The Pacific Northwest is under an excessive heat advisory until Sunday night. And this is oppressive. It's sticky. It's heavy kind of weather. It's the kind where you have to worry about the health and safety of elderly folks and where it feels like a sauna outside even after the sun goes down. But Western Washington is far from alone in these scorching temperatures. Recently, Europe was beset by record high temps that fueled massive wildfires. Earlier in the summer, India and Pakistan suffered through a series of extreme heat events that tested the limits of human survivability. And it's all being exacerbated by climate change. If you are feeling a sense of dread, foreboding, stress, watching the changes that humans burning fossil fuels have wrought on this planet, you're not alone. Climate anxiety and eco-grief are some names researchers have coined for the psychological effects of climate change. And it's something more and more of of us are reckoning with these days. Joanne Silberner, you have reported on the issue of climate change and mental health. What kinds of things have you found? 
Well, it's the whole range from uh, just sort of a mild disease to hospital admissions for, especially for people with mental illnesses or people who are vulnerable. Um, nationally, there was just a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that saw an 8% increase in admissions for psychiatric reasons among insured people during mm. heat waves. And you can imagine that, that, you know, they're probably not as vulnerable to heat as people who without insurance. And then you've got uh, uh, something called solastalgia, I think was the first term for it. And this was coined back in 2007 by an Australian philosopher slash sociologist who, he defined it as a nostalgia for the weather that used to be, for the way things used to be, you know, for your environment. And it's pretty universal. I, I don't know. I mean, the only people I know who aren't prone to this are climate deniers. And it, it certainly makes me <laughs> want to be one because this is something I think that sticks with all of us. But it's a real range. I mean, also physical illnesses can be exacerbated by this as well. Solastalgia. That was a new term for me, Joanne, that, that you taught me. I'm thinking a lot, too, right now about the way that youth are dealing with this. They're going to be here and dealing with our mistakes as adults for a lot longer. Uh, Mike, you're a dad. How does this affect young people, maybe people in your life? And and how do you talk to them about it? Um, Well, I would say two ways. And and the funny thing is, I I have that nostalgia. I grew up in a time where it would be raining right now in July when I was a kid. But, you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter and they talk about the climate, they talk about environment. And it's kind of it's turned her into like climate police. Like you, you can't let her see you litter. She she better not see you running that water while you brush your teeth. Like she's she's all over it and she envisions a world that is a better place. And it's like her and all of her classmates are are trying to be that change that they want to see. And I think that that's great. Now, on the other side of that coin, you talk to a high schooler, then it's all gloom and doom. Yeah. And they're just like, woe is me. And, and so it's. It's hitting our, our youth in different ways, depending on just where they are. You know that. Yeah, there was, yeah go oh, ahead, Joanne. One of the things I ran into in Australia was an interesting study they had done of Aboriginal communities back in the very sort of the beginnings of climate change. And people, Aboriginal people in Australia were really being affected. There was a higher rate of depression, and it was mostly because people just had this unease. And they tried in one community, they involved the community members in doing stuff. In uh, They were building, they wanted to do something about water control. So they went to the community and said, how can we do this water control because we're anticipating all of these sorts of things. And when, they, when the community got agency, things got better in that community and they compared it to a new other community that didn't have any agency, didn't have any power. So Mike, what your daughter's doing is just brilliant. You know, she's getting involved and she's trying to do stuff and you want to keep her going through her teenage years and older. And because, you know, hopelessness just leads to, uh, well, problems on your, on your own, but also if we give up, where are we going to go? Well, uh, this is Martin. Uh, I mean, I, um, I, I like that last point you made. I mean, I'll, I'll admit I'm professionally a little bit skeptical whenever we in the media start diagnosing masses of people with uh, <laughs> with psychological problems of this or that, having been Gen X and being diagnosed as being a, a cynic in 1995. That you know, is such I, a Gen I, X I bear, thing to say. I bear Martin. the scars of, uh, of mass, uh, mass pop psychology. But <laughs> I mean, I do think if there is sort of a 
I don't know, mental health or mood problem generationally or, or society-wide, I think it has a lot to do, and this is completely you know, irresponsible journalist speculation, not based on anything real, but it's my impression. Uh, it's based on, on kind of the way we framed this whole question for the last couple decades, which is in almost quasi-religious terms of virtue and sin, you know, that that some people get it, other people don't. Some people live in the light, other people live in darkness, you know. And, um, you know, we're talking about something with a billion points of emissions. You know, no one person can solve this. And we all fall short of the uh, ideal. You know, we all, you know, do things like buy an electric car and then fly off to Portugal with our family, which I just did. You know, I mean, I, I didn't buy the electric car, but I did, you know, fly around, even though we're supposedly ecologically groovy. And I just, you know, I think the kids see this sort of, you know, you're always falling short of this of this ecological environmental ideal, and and they kind of I wouldn't blame them for coming away being cynical and depressed. And to me, if if we just frame this differently, like I mean, to me, I think the whole global warming situation is an economics problem. I mean, we just have to figure out how we're going to price in, and we 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 know that fossil fuels emissions are going to ruin the climate over time. So we have to like we did with cigarettes put a price on, on, on carbon that reflects that. And, and, and I think that would just be a lot less sort of steeped in, in the sense of who's right, who's wrong, who's, who's got the enlightenment, who doesn't. And, uh, and we could maybe make some real progress. And I think our kids would see this whole thing as a lot more, you know, doable if they saw it in terms of, well, you know, what does it cost to, to, to fly off to Portugal? Uh, does it, does it really reflect you know, and, and I think this bill coming out of, um, you know, this this potential bill, I mean, it's not yeah. ideal from an economics point of view. There's a lot of um, a lot of subsidy versus, say, we say, you know, a real price on carbon, like a carbon tax, you know, which I think would be the pure way of going. But at least, it, you know, it shows that we are starting to uh, think in terms of what just what does this cost to do it right? You know, yeah, let's talk about that bill. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, coming into office when he's first elected with promises of putting climate change front and center on his agenda. Uh, He rejoined the Paris Accords, but things appeared to stall when Build Back Better hit a Joe Manchin-shaped wall in the Senate. (laughs) It looks now, though, like talks uh, are back. I mean, after two weeks ago saying, hey, Build Back Better is dead, now it's long live the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is the new name, apparently, but it has a lot of the climate uh, contents that Build Back Better had. Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin are friends again, and they seem to have possibly pulled a fast one in terms of Senate maneuvers on Mitch McConnell, who's not used to getting outsmarted in that area. Uh, Joanne, I'll let you uh, take a crack at this first, and then we'll go around the horn. Uh, What do you make of this bill, $385 billion to combat climate change among its provisions? Uh, You know, I have to confess I'm not familiar enough with it. I can tell you watching things go through the Senate uh, in years past when I was in Washington, uh, it's scary. Uh, The idea that it's going to that anything is going to go through. And I'm I'm guessing this isn't enough. But the the idea that anything is going to go through, I just have to hope. Yeah. Mike, you have a, a take on what's going on in Congress? Well, it's, it's an it's an important step. And I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head. They they had to put inflation front and center to kind of get people to buy in because that is like the hottest topic right now. But I mean, 
you can't we can't ignore the environment right now. We got videos circulating of waves crashing over two foot or two story condos like we have the Internet now. Like we see all of these things. And even going back to what Martin said just about the kids and about prices. Well, kids are seeing celebrities take five minute flights on jets. So like the kids are seeing it and they're feeling it. So I'm very glad that we got above uh, that mansion wall and we might make some leeway. There's no dollar amount right now that's going to be enough, Joanne. You're, you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, we're here, but we got to do something. We have to do something. And, and this is just a great step in that direction. There's a mansion I, wall I, I, and I then maybe a, a Kirsten Cinema moat uh, on the way, right? Martin Costi, <laughs> what, yeah, what do you I was think? Just, I was just going to give a couple of the points on the bill. I, I did a little cribbing of other journalists' work this morning. Um, uh, it, it, it seems like what people are excited about, at least in the environmental world, is is um, this. You're, you're right, uh, Mike. This is, you know... The sugar on top is things like uh, 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 the anti-inflation stuff or the ability for Medicare to negotiate the price of prescription drugs, that kind of thing. You know, it's just this big meatball of different people's interests. But but at the heart of it, this $369 million billion of new climate spending has uh, these tax credits, which are, you know, it sounds people are falling asleep. I can hear them already. But but what it is, is uh, we already have these these um, tax credits for wind wind farms, that kind of thing. But it, it, it ramps it up in a way that you can either get a tax credit from the government to build something that's called the investment tax credit, or you can get a production tax credit where you just get money as long as that's producing green power, right? Uh, and they and and economists at like the University of Chicago looked at this and they're quite impressed. They did the, the random models. I think this will be really efficient at getting a lot more of these things off the ground. Um, you know, up to thirty percent of the cost of the project could be covered by the investment tax credit, or you get paid for every kilowatt hour you produce. Right? Uh, other things that would just affect us directly: seventy five hundred dollar federal rebate for a new electric vehicle, or four thousand for a used. You know, if yeah. you've been coveting your neighbor's uh, uh, leaf. Which is down to you know maybe a fifty mile range, <laughs> but you may still want it. You could get if you far- can find it. Yeah, right, well, yeah, exactly. But four thousand dollars to to defray the cost of that. I mean, I could see that really jump starting the market for electric vehicles. I mean, you know, it's all subsidies. Subsidies are messy. There's a lot of waste, but it is a lot of money towards these things. Um, you know, it's not again the pure world where you just set the price on on carbon and let people figure it out. But it, it, you know, this is this is politically maybe more doable than that, and you know, we got to go with the art of yeah. The, the and feasible, it's a lot of you know? carrots, like you said, Martin. Totally. You know, it's a lot of subsidies and carrots for developing this uh, clean industry, replacing the old dirtier technology with cleaner technology. And the selling point, but from Schumer and Mansion when they announced this deal was that it would reduce carbon emissions by roughly forty percent by twenty thirty, which is way closer than we thought we would get to President Biden's goal of cutting emissions by at least 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. So that right. it's a significant step. Um, there was also involved to get Manchin on board, uh, mandating opening up uh, oil and gas leases in Alaska and some other areas of the right. country, uh, smoothing the way for new pipelines to be built. But overall, climate groups are saying this could be the most significant legislation in U.S. history. Uh, we're going to leave it there for now. We oh, can know, review. I want to just add yeah, go, go ahead, Joanna. I think it's really important is that we did so badly in the last few years on climate policy that it's really said to the rest of the world, uh, you know, why should, you know, why should somebody in another country, especially the, the small Pacific Island countries, they're looking at us and saying, you're, you're, 
you're the big polluters and you're not doing anything. You know, we're drowning. And the, the middle countries and the countries that are less rich than we are are saying, why should we make sacrifices so that you can continue? So I think the really important thing here to me is that it's going to say to other countries, all right, we're moving. And, and you know, may, maybe we'll set an example mm-hmm. for once. Week in Review is rolling on here on KUOW. I'm Libby Denkman in for Bill Radke. With me is Joanne Silberner, who you just heard, an independent journalist, NPR National Desk correspondent Martin Costi, and KUOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. Back in a minute here on KUOW. Hey, I want to hear some Springsteen. Back with more Week in Review. I'm Libby Denkman in for Bill Radke. He's on vacation. And we are talking about the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, which is now active nationwide. Earlier this month, the three-digit number took over from the old system of local suicide hotlines. It used to be a 10-digit number. Now you can call just 988 anywhere in the U.S. to get help from a trained counselor in English and Spanish. And if that's you or a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, whatever it is, anyone in mental health crisis, you can get help there. But this push to promote the new simplified number has some worried that the system is not ready for the increased demand. Our mental health support system is a patchwork of local nonprofits, hospitals, support groups. So wrangling all of this is not easy. Joanne Silberner, uh, what do you think about this rollout and the potential for increased demand on our already stretched mental health system? Well, the Department of Health and Human Services is estimating that uh, need will double or that calls to the system will double. And in Massachusetts, they already have. There have been reports of that. Uh, The need is enormous. Uh, Suicides have gone up from 2000 to 2018, went up about 35%. Curiously, they dipped a little bit during COVID, and they may be because people were, families at least, were around other, you know, family members, and there was less privacy, so that may have done it. But in terms of do we, are we going to be able to meet the demand, there's a lot more money coming in, uh, I think something like over $400 million from the feds uh, to support the call-in system. What's really needed, though, are places to, or places for people to go. You know, it, uh, it's hard to send people to emergency rooms when you know, you know, people who call in who need immediate help. And they're working on that. And I think it's going to very much be a state by state issue because some states are putting a lot of money into of their own money into this or effort into this and some states are not. And in terms of the call system, actually, it looks like Washington state is putting an effort in. There's a new, te- there's going to be a new tax on phones. I think it's like 24 cents a month. But, you know, it's going to bring in money. And the idea is to beef up the call system, which is already doing well. Our our state is doing well. It answers something like seven out of 10 calls within 30 seconds compared to, uh, I think it was Illinois, that gets to 10% of calls within at all. You know, so we're starting from a good place. I think what we'll need to do is beef up some of the referral places yeah. places to send people. The New York Times looked at calls to the former lifeline and the number that were disconnecting before they got help. 
you know, 18 percent nationwide, they said, of roughly one million phone calls placed to the lifeline in the first half of this year uh, were abandoned. And some of that has to do with the wait times. Some of that has to do with other reasons. But it does seem like Washington state's putting money behind this and is beefing this system up in a way um, that other states are not. Uh, Mike, I know uh, you've been concerned about who answers these calls. Talk to me a little bit about what you're uh, thinking about. Well, I mean, first and foremost, Washington is doing a good job. Those calls are being answered. Um, A lot of the data shows that a lot of these calls are people who just need to talk to someone. So if you can answer seven out of 10 calls in the first 30 seconds and get a person on the phone with another person to hear them, then you're doing well. But, uh, you know, I got some friends at the South Seattle Emerald. I got some people in the community and people are just wondering, you know, in those instances where these calls do have to get referred somewhere else. And it looks like there's only about less than two percent of these calls actually need that type of referral. Who's going to show up? And, you know, when you talk to people in the community, especially in Seattle, where SPD doesn't have the best history of showing up and handling these calls with people in mental crisis with, you know, without violence. People want to know, you know, who's actually going to be called. And I've talked to some people that have done some reporting and it still isn't really clear what that answer is. So right now it's just a question. Yeah. And of course, it does really put the spotlight uh, on the need for alternatives to police response for people in mental health crisis. Uh, Martin, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been covering this for a while, this uh, this this question of police responding to um People in mental crisis. I mean, the police are the first to tell you they'd rather not respond to the uh, nonviolent cases like that. Um, uh, I think one of the flaws of the 911 system has been it's been this all purpose emergency number to the degree where, you know, people call 911 on barking dogs or on, you know, the fact that they had a bad dream or whatever it is. You know, it becomes too, too much of a, of a catch all. And of course, then it catches nonviolent people in nonviolent crisis, health, health crisis, health, uh, mental health crisis. Um, and so segregating this out into a separate number probably helps self-select away some of the people who shouldn't be uh, calling the police to begin with. Um, so I think, you know, police I've talked to are wel- uh, welcoming that aspect. Uh, the question is, like Mike said, though, um, for people who in, are in serious trouble and they really need a professional's help, not just a, a phone conversation, you know, do we have, are we, are we advertising something we can deliver for those people or are they going to end up more disappointed um, when they call that number and don't, don't get the help they need. Um, And then, you know, but from the police point of view, any kind of, any kind of, 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 of of triage, I think is the right word here uh, that happens on the, on the intake is because otherwise it's just these emergency dispatchers who have to make that call when they get the 911 call and they've got to figure out, you know, even if you have an alternate response unit in your city, which a lot of places now have uh, that operator has to make that, decision. And that's not always a, you know, uh, easy decision or judgment to make. Yeah, I mean, we just had the Charlena Lyles inquest coming back with a a ruling recently, uh, you know, a young mother who died at the hands of Seattle police after a really tragic series of events involving her own mental health crisis. It just is so uh, so much of a failure that we don't have a more robust system to respond when somebody is especially known to have a history of mental health uh, crises. You know, big questions are remaining, too, about you call, you, um, you know, get connected to services, but where are the beds? 
oftentimes where people end up are in emergency rooms or in jails. Those are the two pathways for somebody in acute crisis. And the other options just uh, really aren't in place yet. Is there anything else you want to add to this, Joanne, as you're watching the 988 system unfold and, and the way that it's rolling out in other parts of the country? Well, I want to, first of all, agree with Martin that the police, this is not something they want to do, and they're not really trained to do it. And you had Esme Jimenez on your show earlier in this week, and she was talking about climate connection, uh, climate connections, I'm sorry. Uh, That's the last topic. (laughs) Crisis connections, which handles most of the King County and and, uh, uh, calls. And they estimated that less than 2% of their call do they further, do they send on to the police. And I think it's important for people to know that if they call 988, they're not going to end up uh, with the policeman at their door, uh, a, a police officer at their door ready to um, to take over with violence. Uh, the call When you call into 988, they're... The idea is to replace the police to figure out what people need and get them help. Very, very rarely do they get turned over. So I, this is, you know, there have been a lot of efforts to deal with the suicide rate. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic in, for Washington in this case, which hasn't overall done all that well with uh, mental illness issues or mental health spending. I think that this one, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic this time around. I mean, the concept of not having to call 911 where you're guaranteed pretty much a police response, calling 988, at least you know that there will be some other alternatives offered. It's a step, but I know there will be hesitancy to call if you think there is even a chance that there would be a police response that could put somebody in danger. I just really quickly, before we move on, want to play this audio from Kai Cuevas, who's a 988 crisis call specialist, whom Soundside producer Noel Gasca spoke to this week about the job that he does and the way that it makes him see people differently when he's on the other end of that phone. Since starting this job, I tend to like like in my everyday life, I tend to like look at people a lot differently, you know, because these are just regular people in your everyday life, like calling. And I'll look around at people and it really just further drilled into my head that like you never know what somebody's going through. And that's why you always have to like prioritize kindness and respect. And that's just further been drilled into my mind ever since starting this, because, you know, the person that you see at Starbucks or someone you see on the street, like they might be calling later or they might have called yesterday. And that's something that I've just been thinking about. And it's like, I have to always put like that kindness and that respect forward, you know, like regardless if I'm in my everyday life or I'm at work, you know, you just never know what's going to go on. And it's just important. Kai has been doing this for uh, a while now and just really enjoyed hearing his voice and knowing that that's the kind of dedication and mindset that's on the other end of the line. Um, turning to a subject that's very much connected to mental health and uh, crisis situations, uh, gun violence in the Pacific Northwest. You know, each year, nearly 40,000 Americans die by suicide, homicide or accidents with firearms. In King County, more people are killed by firearms than by car crashes. You know, there's an annual financial cost of gun violence of nearly $200 million uh, in medical charges and lost productivity in our region. And we have seen incidents of gun violence increasing in some communities during the pandemic. In 2021, Seattle recorded more shootings involving injuries and fatalities than it had in the previous five years. Um, Pierce County's on track this year uh, for a record year of homicides. Some of those shootings do include f- fatal police shootings as well. 
Martin Costi, you've been working on a reporting project for NPR involving gun violence. What sorts of things are you looking at and what are you finding? Uh, yeah, there are quite a few of us doing different kinds of stories. I've been kind of fascinated with the um, uh, apparent, at least, and, and this is something I'm trying to nail down, but the apparent sort of shift in gun culture among young people, young men especially, um, it, it just since the pandemic started, there seems to be uh, you know, a, a real sense that there's a little bit more of this kind of gun play, this sort of gun as part of social interactions, um, uh, the, the taunting over the internet followed by a drive-by, uh, that kind of thing. And you look at you look at the King King County, uh, the, the uh, prosecuting attorney's office does sort of a, a granular study of, of shootings um, in the county quarter by quarter. They just came out last week with the latest QT for uh, 2022. And uh, you just see these numbers and over time and how they just jumped right around the, during the pandemic. And then they kind of go up and down a little bit. But you really see um, you see disproportionate it's just so lopsided uh numbers in terms in terms of geography and demographics um and age groups um i was actually surprised there was a big jump in in uh, shootings and victims in the um middle almost middle age group for a while for about two quarters you know men uh let's see 20 uh, 30 to 39 jumped wow. and then went back down but it but these young people these teenagers and then early 20s it just uh, it's kind of a it, it, people expected maybe it would go up and then go down again during the pandemic. And you know, when schools reopened, that it would go away. And it's kind of stubbornly continued. And we see the headlines every now and then these sort of disheartening, um, senseless shootings and kind of wondering what's behind that. And so we're trying to we're digging into that a little bit more, trying to figure out what's going on. One of the working theories we're hearing from people who 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 deal with the kids who are now being prosecuted or being taken into the system somehow is um gun ubiquity may be playing a role here that there the, the the sudden fast increase in gun purchases as the pandemic started has had ripple effects um obviously kids can't buy guns directly but uh they they are around them more now there are more guns in cars to be stolen there are guns sort of on hand in a way that then leads to uh things that would have maybe been a different kind of physical alter- altercation Mike um, Davis, uh, I see you nodding about the gun ubiquity issue. I mean, that's something that resonates with you. Yeah, well, I mean, there was just recently there was a shooting in Tacoma and um, I believe it was Fox that reported and they went out there and they talked to one of the residents and his quote was that he now has a gun in every room in his house. And I, I just couldn't fight the feeling of, you know, more guns can't be the answer. Like we can't turn our communities into the wild wild west the answer isn't you get a gun so that you can go shoot somebody too the answer has to be less guns we have to to move away from what martin mentioned that's just this culture of everybody having guns i I would also say too that you know it's easy to say that young people can't buy guns but really they can in a lot of cases you can be 18 when you look at the shooting that happened in the grocery store in buffalo that was an 18 year old who went and bought a gun legally. So, you know, when we live in a society where it's, it's easier for these young people to, to buy a gun than it is for them to buy a beer, you're going to have guns everywhere. And, and 
we're just living with the ramifications of a society that's so overrun with guns. Mm. There is there is a 21 limit for handguns, which is the vast majority of these shootings. Um, but I take your point, you know, the uh, uh, and that's for uh, federal federally registered gun sellers, not private sales. But uh, but, you know, we certainly see it. I've seen it all around the country with um, just the 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 the. the the greater sort of presence and that that sense of a of a sort of vicious cycle. Well, everyone's got one. I need one too. Um, that that seems to be what I'm hearing more from people involved in in who get close to these these incidents. Uh, just you know, I, I'd also like to point out what our neighbor Portland is going through right now. Yeah, it's it's really dire there. They have declared the mayor has declared an emergency over their gun violence problem. Um, murders uh, approximately tripled by rate. During the pandemic. Um, And again, stubbornly kind of staying high. And when I've been looking at this very detailed report, they commissioned with some uh, some analysts there uh, looking at their numbers. And uh, most of this stuff is happening between groups that have groups, gangs, whatever you want to call them, associations who kind of know each other, who interact. Some are allies, some are not. And a lot of it is just grudges. And they even categorize the shootings by what sparked it. And it's things like um, instant offense or 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 long term grudge that kind of thing. Those are the the top reasons are just these these beefs, you yeah. know. And it's uh, things that probably wouldn't have ended up in a shooting if there hadn't been a gun in, in someone's hand. There are these really innovative solutions coming from community violence intervention specialists. I've gotten a chance to interview some working in South LA on they're, they're mostly men who have experience in the gang life and they've come out of it and then they turn around and and use their connections their social uh, know how to try to identify those beefs and try to identify the pressure points and find ways to either bring people together or in some cases separate them, send them off on a trip, send them, you know, to go do something else rather than stew and find ways to, you know, uh, work out vengeance on on another group. Um, there was in the bipartisan gun violence law that passed after uh, Uvalde and, and Buffalo Congress provided some extra money for community violence prevention. There's also um, uh, uh, the federal government has said that local municipalities can use some of the federal stimulus money they got last year for community violence prevention. So that's some of the more creative stuff that, you know, can effectively intervene in times like you're mentioning, Martin, when things are about to boil over. Uh, Anything else you want to add on this? Well, yeah, and we we have similar stuff here. Um, we have similar programs here. I guess what what the, what the the people who study this cannot tell me for sure is whether that's working. Yeah. Um, you know, and and whether that kind of spending is actually panning out. Uh, I, I can't tell you one way or the other. Um, and and frankly, this this change we've been seeing over the last couple of years, I think, is fresh enough that I don't know if we can answer whether whether or not that 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 new federal money will make a difference or not. But certainly, we're trying. Well, I'll add though when you when you talk to people in the community. A lot of them are saying that, you know, some of those programs are great and they're doing great work. Um, you mentioned like sending youth away, community mm-hmm. passageways did that. They had the shooting there in the church during yes. one of their programs. I covered that for the South Seattle Emerald. When, but a lot of these community groups are also saying that we need resources before that. So like you, you hear Martin talk about Portland and talk about the beef or like what actually sparked it. Well, there's a lot of groups that would argue that before the kids even get there, where were the resources in that community? Where were the programs? What did the youth have access to before they even chose to join a gang, before they even walked down that path? Yeah. So, And what did their parents have access to before that to and it, and it help them? Yeah, it all it all snowballs. It snowballs. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, one unanswered question I really have is, 
did the closure of the schools play a role in this? You know, when, when, when for a year and a half, kids in Seattle didn't have normal school to go to, and they may not have had a situation at home where they could be on a computer screen all day. Did that void get filled by this? I don't know. And not just the closure of the schools, but closures of places to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's major. And, you know, there's there's a lot of studies that look at the late night program by Seattle Parks Mm -hmm. and Recreation, for example. They put those programs in really specific neighborhoods. And when those programs are going, you always see like there's a deterrence in crime when kids are at late night and they partner with Seattle police and they brought police in there and they had that FaceTime between the kids and the cops and the communities. And it was a really great program that saw really great results. The pandemic shut the late night program down. It's back now. But when you talk about what we were seeing over that time, it's programs like that being absent. Yeah. Mike Davis is our arts and culture reporter at KUOW. You're also hearing the voices of Martin Costi, NPR National Desk correspondent, and Joanne Silberner, the independent journalist uh, who joins us regularly here on Week in Review. So happy to have you. Uh, and thanks again. I'm, I'm Libby Denkman. And for Bill Radke, going to be back in just a minute here on Week in Review. Hey there, it's Week in Review. I'm Libby Denkman, and for Bill Radke this week, Bill's taken the week off. With me is Martin Costi, NPR National Desk correspondent, Joanne Silberner, independent journalist, and Mike Davis, KUW arts and culture reporter. And it's been a little over a month since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Now the battle over abortion rights is playing out in courts and legislatures across the country. There is an overwhelming amount of information and emotion out there when it comes when it comes to reproductive health access. Some local artists, though, are working to channel all of that and their feelings into art. And Mike Davis, you wrote about that as one of your first stories here at KUOW. We're so happy to have you now on staff. We, uh, we're super happy to scoop you up. Uh, Mike, what's happening? Well, yeah, well, I mean, all of us are processing everything that happened with Roe. Um, you know, we had the leak, so a lot of folks seen it coming. But in the arts community, they're processing it as well. And because of that, the rest of us, I don't want to say get the benefit, but we do get the experience, a lot of great art that is being born out of these times. And yes, in that audio feature, I spoke with some local artists. And uh, one thing that I learned, though, is that, you know, they both spoke about how reproductive rights had made appearances in their arts even before this moment. Um, This is something that they had been dealing with and now it's on the forefront and we're seeing it and it's this topic of national conversation. But uh, for a lot of people in our society, this has always been a thing and this has always been in the art. This isn't new. Give me some examples of the kinds of visual art that you're seeing. My my personal favorite was one involving, I think it was a weasel and a trap, like a wire trap. Oh, that was that was a great one. That was uh, Jody Yodersma. She she made this sculpture of this furry little fuzzy weasel. It almost looked like a stuffed animal. It was so cute, but then you seen that his foot was caught. And all of this, this electrical wire and speaking with her about that piece, that's exactly like she said that, you know, it's it's man made. And what does this weasel have to do? Does it have to to physically chew off an appendage just to get free of the man made constraints Mm -hmm. on its own body? And, And it's just it's a vivid depiction of what she felt just living in America as a person 
with reproductive rights. Mm. Yeah, there's one with, I mean, really beautiful and also striking with hands emerging and the hands were making various gestures, some of them rude, some of them religious. Um, I really encourage everyone to go check out Mike's feature on KUOW.org. Um, and it's it's the way that local artists are channeling their feelings about reproductive access in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned. I want to turn now to another piece of art, something that's making uh, people a little bit uh, hot under the collar. I, speaking of hot under the collar, the AC really is not working in this studio. So Mike and I, are <laughs> we are hot. that way right now. Um, Beyonce, of course, was not the only important music news that happened this week. Tickets to see the boss went on sale. All right, Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen. He'll be performing at Climate Pledge Arena in February. And fans are excited, but getting those tickets came with a healthy dose of sticker shock. And it involved a dynamic pricing situation. It's a new system that Ticketmaster has implemented, which basically is the way that airlines price uh, airline tickets, for example. But there are a lot fewer tickets to go see Bruce Springsteen than there are to go fly around the world. Uh, Joanne Silberner, I'm going to turn to you as our Bruce Springsteen expert. You're a New Jersey native. You've seen the boss many, many times. What's happening here and how are people responding? And how are you responding as a big fan? It's a major betrayal. You know, one of the things about Bruce's music, when he started out, you know, it was all about, like he's fond of saying, it was all about sex or the lack thereof for a teenager. And it was angst and it was all that. But really, over the years, he's developed as an artist. And, you know, along the lines of what we were talking about with artists doing work on abortion, he's really become more like Pete Seeger or, you know, any of the, the folk singers who really took on social issues and social causes. And along with the regular rock and roll, and it's it's been so important to fans and he's been very his his organization has been very careful for decades on trying to limit the number of tickets that that end up in scalpers hands and causing people to spend a lot of money they went for dynamic pricing on the u.s sales and nobody can understand why i mean they didn't do it in europe you know he's he's gonna he's starting at the tour the store in north america then he's going to europe coming back here they're not doing it in europe and what it what dynamic pricing is is as as people apply to get the tickets, you know, when they go on sale, the greater the demand, the higher the price certain tickets go, not all tickets. And Ticketmaster has tried to defend itself by saying 88% are going at face value. I, I don't trust Ticketmaster for a minute, and uh, I'll report that that's what they said. I'll also tell you I completely don't believe it. I went for tickets in Portland. I went for tickets in Seattle, and I was being – you had the choice between going for all tickets or – non-dynamic price tickets or just dynamic price tickets and I can tell you I went for I actually went for non-dynamic price tickets and still was seeing the dynamic pricing very early on and, and what kind of insane. prices were you seeing I mean what does that mean well I you know I it, it, tickets I was going for tickets in the uh, 150 to 200 dollar range and I was seeing tickets that were four thousand dollars whoa you know, and for one concert, one, for, for I mean, it doesn't concert. matter where and, you're sitting. That's a lot. Yeah, and there were people who would mortgage their house, but I, I, 
you know, the fact that they're asking these prices, and it, I don't want to sit next to those people. It's it's such it's so non Brucean. It's no, so non Springsteen. And his his what did his manager say? His manager said that they look carefully at what our peers have been doing and set the level lower than some and on a par with others. And the fact is that you know you don't want nobody wants the money going to scalpers. But I also don't necessarily want it to go to Ticketmaster, and I don't think that Bruce really needs the money. Yeah, let me, I want to read you something from one of my favorite Springsteen websites, uh, Backstreets.com. The editors got together and they wrote, at a time when we needed to feel hope and promise, we've left feeling further disillusioned, Oof. downhearted, and dispirited. And that sounds like a Springsteen song right there. It does. <laughs> well, that's it. And he's been silent. His manager has spoken, but... This is, there, there are people who, you know, I've gone to more than 100 concerts. I know people who've gone, followed tours and gone to 100 or 150 concerts on a tour, you know, because they'll go on these year-long tours. I know people who are saying, you know what? That's it. Wow, Which that's is- the straw that, that broke the back on their fandom. That's, uh, Martin, you have any uh, bands out there that you would pay $4,000 to go <laughs> see? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I do not. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm torn because, you know, I was, I was uh, waxing uh, University of Chicago earlier on the whole question of, of putting a price on carbon. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, I guess, I mean... Let the market it, decide! Well, I mean, you know, I'm torn because if, if, if people are willing to pay that and it's a very limited resource, the guy doesn't tour that much, um, maybe that's how, you know, how else do you, do you decide? Uh, who, you know, is it going to be one of those things where it goes online at new and or at midnight and everyone's uh made the best internet connection win i don't know i mean you know we've seen this in sports for the i mean that's been the problem right right yeah i mean it just goes instantly right i I, there's i can't tell you how many nights i spent on the streets of baltimore and washington when i lived back east uh waiting for the you know there would be a line outside it was all very civilized we were all Springsteen fans and we'd go overnight there was one time i think two nights i was young two nights on the street you know and that that's one way to do it. I, that was that well, wasn't. I, you know, I'm not happy with that way. I don't want to go back to those days, but I also don't want to go towards the days where only rich people get to go. I, I don't mean to be glib, but maybe what we just need to do is recognize that our our tastes. I mean, my tastes are expensive too. If I actually saw them in person, these you know people I like to hear. Um, may, maybe you know because they're older and they're established, and we're all older and we got more money. Um, Maybe the key is find some uh, 22-year-old next Bruce Springsteen who plays for Peanuts at uh, Bar del Norte on uh, Lake City Way and, um, you know, get in well on the ground floor. <laughs> and Martin, Martin's right, because I, I was so prepared to come in here and complain. Kendrick Lamar is coming here, and the tickets that I wanted were like 500 bucks. So I was like, I'm not going to do it. But you're talking about $4,000? I'm probably going to buy those tickets when I leave here right now, man. 500 is nothing. Because <laughs> Kendrick is, I mean, he will be at, at Bruce's age. He'll have that exactly. kind of influence. Yeah. So I better see him now Kendrick. because yeah. well, when I get older, I'm not going to have the chance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's tough when you love somebody as much as Bruce inspires love and Joanne and all of the great fans out there. Um, I just think about the joy in Chris Christie's face 
anytime I've seen a photo of him at a Bruce Springsteen concert, and I understand it, it immediately translates what's going on there. Um, you and Chris, Joanne, that's the that's the crew. Well, well we're, we did go to the same high school. Oh. See, I had a feeling I was getting that vibe. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left here, and I wanted to turn to each of you for just a fun uh, conversation. Um, in, instead of the usual, we can review what's making you smile this week. Uh, we all need to cool down here in the Pacific Northwest. So we're going to talk about what's your favorite way to cool off when there is a heat wave going on in the Seattle area. Mike Davis, what's your favorite way to cool off? Lake Washington. Yeah. Hands down. Hands down. Go to Lake Washington, find you a nice little spot, get you some floaties, grill. Perfect. <laughs> what kind of floaties? What's your floaty shape? Well, you see, I don't get in because I'm not the strongest swimmer. <laughs> The, the, <laughs> I leave it to the kids. I leave it to the kids. You know, my partner's a great swimmer. She could save everybody. But, uh, you know, my body's a little heavier, so I don't trust it. Sure. But, you know, yeah, yeah. I pitch my little shade tent. I sit on the side. I read. And, yeah. you know, it's a nice time. Maybe you get splashed a little bit yeah, from yeah, the yeah. lake. Squirt guns. I like squirt guns. Yeah. Martin, what's your favorite way to cool off? Uh, I was going to say Lake Washington. You beat me to it. Yeah, it's the uh, three weeks of the year where it feels good um, <laughs> temperature wise in there. Uh, yeah, I know we, we have one of those uh, stand up paddle boards. We all fight over in the family and whoever gets uh, done with their work first grabs it and goes down to the, the shore. And uh, it's wonderful. What's the favorite beach, though? I mean, you guys are saying Lake Washington. That's a big lake. Where do you stop? Oh, yeah, exactly. No way am I saying where we're going. I'm no a way. Seattle native, you know, uh, in, a, in a city uh, yeah. full of implants. So I know where we go <laughs> and we always yep. get a spot. So I, I can't give it away. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The spot I like, the spot my family likes, uh, let's just say the people who live next to it wish we didn't know about it. I'm certainly not going to tell more people about it. So. <laughs> See, there you go, Martin. There you go. Joanne, what's your strategy for cooling off in this hot weather? I'm completely with Mike and Martin on Lake Washington. And I'll also say where I go some of the time is I take my puppy to the dog park. They have the most amazing dog park there where, where you can get right down into the dogs can get right down into the water. I, I sort of wade there. I'm not sure I want to swim right there, but the dog park is great. And actually, we are so blessed in the city with so many places to go where we can just walk in the trees, the Arboretum, any Ravenna. There's so many places to go where we can be in the shade among in green. And that really feels good. I love that you guys are all mentioning the lake. I have to say it's been so hot lately that I'm actually tempted to go to Alki and just jump in the sound. That's, that's where I'm at that's right now. And I feel like it'll have like a, a reinvigorating uh, uh, effect. Uh, thank you, everybody, so much for stopping by today on Week in Review. You heard from independent journalists covering health and other topics, Joanne Silberner, KUW Arts and Culture reporter Mike Davis, and NPR National Desk correspondent Martin Costi. Find them all at Lake Washington, but don't ask where, okay? That's, that's a rude question. Uh, I'm Libby Denkman, in for Bill Radke today. This show was produced by Kevin Kniested, social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza. You can always find us on Facebook and YouTube. Every Week in Review is live streamed there. And Tio Popescu is also uh, on the social media and live streaming front. Thanks, everybody, for sticking by us this week while Bill Radke is away. He should be back next week. This is Week in Review on KUOW. Just dancing in the dark Messages
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.